on and off. I'm terrible with Mike Shaw. So I had the opportunity to be one of those people with all the kids waving a branch, but Alex didn't film me. But I was there. I just want you all to know. Okay, uh, before we begin this morning, I would invite you all to join me in prayer. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday, friends. Hopefully that was clear by chaos with kids and confusion about the whole plan, waving palms everywhere. Palm Sunday is always this joyous day. And although we're no longer in our Lytton sermon series, I still want us all to consider the covenants we've talked about the past few weeks through the sermon today and next week, because technically it's still the Lenten season, and each of those covenants are important to our faith. They're important to this story of Holy Week and where we find ourselves today. So even though we're not blatantly focusing on these covenants, I want us to encourage—I want to encourage us to all keep those covenants on the forefront of our minds as we continue to journey closer to Easter morning. Every year, I find Palm Sunday to be a tough kind of Sunday. It seems so glorious and like such a high moment to recognize during Lent. And then as the week goes on, we're kind of brought down again. We're back in that Lenten reflectiveness as we celebrate Monday, Thursday, and as we remember Good Friday. And this morning, I want us to keep waving those palms and being excited, but I also want us to see this story in a new light, just as we've seen all of the covenant stories in a new way this series. I want us to see what the full context of this passage, this Palm Sunday story, can teach us today as followers of Christ. During our Lytton series, I've been a little mean with you. I haven't gotten into the actual scripture until later on in the sermon. That changes today, y'all. We're going straight into the scripture this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to grab that. If not, it will be on the screens behind me. We are going to be in the gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the 11th chapter, and we're going to just start with verses 1 through 7 this morning. Hear these words. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will find up there a colt. You will find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie the colt and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, its master needs it, and he will send it back right away. The disciples went and found a colt tied to a gate outside on the street, and they untied it. Sure enough, some people standing around said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them just what Jesus said, and they left them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes upon it, and Jesus sat on the colt. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. These first seven verses that we read about Palm Sunday 
aren't really about Palm Sunday. They're about the preparation that went in to prepare for Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem. And I think this is very telling because all of the Palm Sunday service, all the passage is verses 1 through 11. And we just read seven of them, and we haven't even gotten to Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. That means a majority of the passage is actually focused on the preparation. It sounds like something is significant in this preparation. We can't overlook these details and what they tell us about the larger story of Palm Sunday. Here at Christ United, just a few years ago, we spent the Lenten season going through the Gospel of Mark. And for those of you who may not remember, Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. One reason I like it. And it is also the oldest of the Gospel. It's believed that this Gospel was intentionally written for people outside of the Jewish faith, which means throughout this Gospel, Mark spends a lot of time trying to explain traditions and these phrases and different things to give the people more insight into areas they may not be familiar with. And I also really like this book, this gospel in particular, because I like the way that the disciples are portrayed throughout. They are constantly asking Jesus questions, which I feel like I would do. They're like, what did the scripture mean when it said this? Or they ask Jesus, what do you mean when you say that? Another reason I like Mark's depiction of the disciples is that they misunderstand everything too, which I also resonate with. Jesus actually asks them, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the disciples don't really have a good answer. Even though they've been next to Jesus during his entire ministry, something keeps eluding them as to who Jesus truly is. I relate to this confusion and this misunderstanding of what's happening right in front of them. There's a lot I still don't understand about God. Yet, even with the disciples' questions and curiosity and the brevity of this particular gospel, Mark gives us this passage, verses 1 through 7. We get all of these details about a cult a cult that's supposed to be secured for Jesus to ride. And when Jesus gives these instructions, we don't hear the disciples ask any questions. They don't say, what do you mean? We're just supposed to steal this guy? Instead, they listen and they follow through. This is the first inkling that we get that something new is happening in the Gospel of Mark. This is not going to be a normal trip from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus seems to have a particular plan in mind. There seems to be a very distinct intention in this story. How did, the, how did Jesus know there was a cult in the first place? How did he know the people would ask what the disciples were doing when they untied the colt? 
Some people believe that there are a number of different motivations for Jesus asking for a cult in particular. Some say that it is to fulfill this piece of scripture from the book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing along, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. It says right there, colt. There are other interpreters who point to the colt as a sign of peace because there was actually this precedent of princes who would ride in on colts into cities and that was a symbol that they came to bring peace, to find some peaceful way to proceed in their relationship together. Like most of the Bible, we can't know what Jesus exactly intended in this moment, what he wanted when he asked these disciples to go and untie and bring the colt to him. But we do know that it was clearly intentional. Jesus had very specific instructions, and these instructions were followed without question. And Mark thinks it's important for the readers of that time, and I would argue us now, to recognize this importance. It also demonstrates the power of Christ, that Jesus knew about this cult and the reactions of the people around it. It's important for Mark's readers to realize the power that Jesus had, that extended further than him simply being human. Jesus is intentional here, and Jesus demonstrates his power. Let's read the rest of this passage. We're going to start with verses 8 and end through 11. Jesus has just sat on the colt where we'll pick up. Many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of Jesus and those following were shouting this, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. After he looked around at everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Here's the part where I want us to stretch our minds a little more this morning. When I hear this scripture, at least when I remember hearing this scripture growing up, I typically imagine many people from all over Jerusalem rushing to Jesus where he's entering the city, and they're throwing this huge parade for him. But actually, it seems like there may be some other motivations behind Jesus's entry in this particular way. This is where the tension of Holy Week begins to build. This is the moment that begins Good Friday, that leads to Good Friday. Because when Jesus rides a colt, a symbol of peace into Jerusalem, a city that's under Roman, Roman rule that is full of the highest Jewish leaders, he's making a statement. 
Jesus makes a statement when he enters Jerusalem in this way. This could actually be taken as a form of protest. It was an obvious attack on the institution, both the Roman rulers and the Jewish leaders. Historically, this kind of entrance of someone on an animal into the city with people shouting Hosanna and laying out their coats and waving their leaves was reserved for the powerful, for the esteemed. This was reserved for military conquerors, for kings, for leaders of the nation. Typically, after a successful battle, a Roman general would ride in with a parade. Typically, the general wasn't on a colt. He was on a fancy stately horse, surrounded by soldiers and carrying in all of the winnings from their conquered city. And people would line the streets and give up shouts of praises and cheers, and they would sing hymns. Then the military leaders would go to the temple to offer sacrifices and gratitude. What Jesus is doing here is different. And for the people in that time, it was obviously different. It was so different, so opposite from those military leaders. Jesus can't not be making a point here. Jesus is being counter to the culture. Jesus is being disruptive. Jesus brought peace. Jesus brings peace. To the people of that time, Jesus brought love and justice and gave a voice to everyone. He held the powerful accountable. He listened to the weary. And Jesus healed not just the poor, but also the rich. Jesus was a person for all. He came in peace, and he still brought disruption. We can't see this any clearer than when the people who are coming around Jesus as he enters in on this cult, as they bring up these praises, these shouts, these yells of Hosanna, just as we sang earlier. Because this phrase, Hosanna, can be interpreted two different ways. It can mean alleluia as the sign of praise, and it can also be interpreted as a pleading, as a cry, as save us. Alleluia, save us. Either interpretation of the people's Hosanna means trouble for the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders. It means that the people are looking for something different. They're either celebrating Jesus or they're reaching out to Jesus for help. They're yearning for change from this oppressive system they find themselves in. And still, even the people yelling out Hosanna along the way don't understand the fullness of what Jesus is doing. They lay out their coats and their clothes out on the ground. 
because that's what was done to keep the dirt off of the royalty coming through. People waved palm branches to brush off any dust that comes up so that those people who are entering, they're so important, they couldn't possibly get dirty. But what do we know about Jesus? Jesus didn't mind the dirt. Jesus came for the dirty. Jesus was here for our mess. Jesus came for all people, not only for the powerful Romans, not only for the good, obedient Jewish people, all people, all people for all of time. Even the people then didn't quite understand what was going on. Jesus is popular. Jesus is seen, he's noticed, he's revered by most of the everyday type of people. But so were other really influential people. People like Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela. Popular with the people, but seen as dangerous. Seen as threats to societal norms. These people challenged status quos. They suggested a new way of living. Jesus intentionally rides in on a cult. Jesus displays peace. Jesus displays power. And these tensions around Holy Week begin to mount. This is the beginning of the end. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, Jesus, that last verse tells us, let's read it again just so we're on the same page. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and he looked around at everything. Because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus seems to be staking it out, taking inventory of what's happening in the temple. Jesus implies that something is about to happen in that temple, that he has a plan. And Mark, good old Mark, leaves us on a cliffhanger. It isn't for a few verses until we see Jesus and the disciples re-enter Jerusalem the very next day. He tells us Jesus entered in on Palm Sunday very triumphantly almost and then looks around a temple and leaves. And we have to wait and sit with that. What does that mean? What are the implications here? The tension mounts. It isn't until that next day, we can call it Monday if we're calling Palm Sunday the day of his entry. So then on Monday, just a few verses later, we get the passage of Jesus in the temple where he isn't singing and worshiping peacefully by himself. Instead, he's calling out those who are selling and using the temple for their own gain. And Mark, the passage of Jesus turning the tables comes right after his entry into Jerusalem. Can you feel the tension? The protest of Palm Sunday of that entry leads to the turning of tables on Monday in Mark's gospel. 
And as the audience, as post-Easter people, we know that it's this tension that leads to Friday. Jesus believed in peace. Jesus brought peace. Jesus brings peace. And still, Jesus Christ was seen as a threat. Jesus was seen as dangerous. The ministry he did, the love that he shared, the walls he worked to tear down weren't always interpreted as peaceful in the time in which they happened. Palm Sunday can be a sweet day in the church, a day where we get to wave branches and sing Hosanna. It can also be a day to remember the disruption that Jesus brought to the world, to a broken world. A disruption Jesus still brings today, a disruption that brings about change, that brings about love, that brings about compassion for all people. Even today, aren't we still shouting Hosanna and meaning two things? Don't we mean thank you, God, hallelujah, for the wonderful things in our lives? And on some days, don't we mean Hosanna? Hear our cries, God. Hear our pain. Heal us from the brokenness. This week, I want us to live into this tension we feel happening on Palm Sunday. I said a few times this morning that the tension on Palm Sunday is the beginning of the end. But we as Christians, we know that Easter is coming. We know that the end is not really the end. We know that Jesus came to sacrifice and give grace and abundant life for all of us. No matter the dirt, no matter the meaning behind our hosannas, we are loved. We are loved by a peaceful but disruptive God. I encourage us to live into the tension that today may bring. I want us to each this week to challenge ourselves to follow along in the story, to read part of Jesus' walk through Holy Week each day this week. The church actually produces a Lytton daily devotional. That may be a good place to start. But I want us to really feel the depth, the importance, the powerfulness of this week. I want you all to worship with us either online or on, in person on Monday, Thursday. I want us to be together on Good Friday as we sit with the pain of the crucifixion. And then I want us to gather again next Sunday morning as we celebrate and rejoice and give up alleluias for a God who saves. A morning where all of that tension washes away. And a new thing remains. Because this is the story of Palm Sunday. A disruptive Jesus brings about a new way of living, a new way of hope, a new version of peace. And that is our challenge for each of us as we strive to live in Christ's example. May we know we are together, we are loved, and that Easter is coming.
Amen.